Lord, I pray that every person in this room would have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a hunger to know you, a hunger to know your word, to know this book. Lord, I pray that you'd make us not into just scholars, make us into people who live out what we know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I've surveyed your questions. We've been many, many, many weeks on relationship questions. The rest of the questions fall into a category mostly of of doctrine. Um, Questions like, what about salvation? What about being backslidden? Uh, What about eternal security, once saved, always saved? What about the Trinity, the deity of Christ? How do I witness to this person about this issue? A lot of questions, Old and New Testament. So what I had my wife do is survey the questions. And she wrote down what she thinks I should do. And I've used her suggestions as a guideline. First, she said, why don't you do a study on relationships, divorce, marriage, remarriage. We've done it. Then she says, maybe a study on law versus grace, study on salvation, knowing God's will. And she finally sums it all up. She says, Skip, maybe just a week-by-week study of doctrine, what our church believes, what doctrine is, a deity, salvation, the end times, the Holy Spirit, the Word, inerrancy, the Trinity, and so forth. So I thought we would do that. My first thought when she says, do a study on doctrine. This is surveying your questions based on what you ask. I thought of what most people would think of when they hear the word doctrine. Let's do a study on doctrine. Oh, how boring. And in dealing with issues among Christian people, I find that to be a general consensus. I think they mean well, but I think they've misapplied the meaning of doctrine. You'll be in a conversation with them and you'll exchange your ideas and they say, yeah, but the Bible says this. Well, yes, but the Bible does teach this and this word means that. They may come to a point in the conversation where they say, look, I don't care about doctrine. Let's talk about Jesus. My question is, where did you find out about Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? Well, I know that he's the son of God, that he's God in the flesh. Well, that's doctrine. That's good, wholesome teaching, and that's what doctrine means. There is a modern emphasis that is sort of scary to me. And it's even among Christians. It's this thought of, well, it doesn't matter what we believe, just so that we do right, just so that we behave properly. It doesn't matter what you believe about this. And I agree there are some issues that are real minor And people bicker about them, and it's really not worth it. But there are other issues that you better know about. And it is important. This idea, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, just so you believe something and you don't hurt anybody, is ridiculous. Because what you believe determines how you behave. We act based on what we think is true. And so a study on doctrine, I think, is important. Because there is a high level of ignorance in the church of Jesus Christ. People have a high level of zeal, but they're low on the facts. Now, I am not interested in making you theologians, Theodore theologian, 
or just walk out with a head full of knowledge, but to know what is true about many, many issues concerning God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, salvation, so that you know what the Bible says and you can stand on it and you can affect change in other people's lives. That's the real purpose of us getting together. But in the United States, of all places, and of all times, there's no excuse for us to be ignorant about the Bible if we're Christians. There's just no excuse. We've got more Bible stores filled with more study Bibles, filled with more books and more tapes and more videos and more movies and more seminars than any other place at any other time in history. And yet there is a real lack of Bible knowledge. And we should give ourselves to the Word of God and knowing what it says. One of the illustrations that I have found over the years that <laughs> it's humorous, but it rings a truth about the ignorance of the Bible is this illustration that I have in front of me. A person is being brought before a board, a church council. And this church requires that you know certain facts before you join their church. You have to know certain facts about the Bible. So the candidate comes up for membership and they say, well, what part of the Bible do you like best? He goes, well, I like the New Testament. What book in the New Testament do you like best? The book of parables, sir. Well, would you kindly relate one of those parables to the council? Now, this is his answer. Once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And the thorns grew up and choked that man. And he went on and he met the queen of Sheba. And she gave that man, sir, a thousand talents of gold and silver and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got in his chariot and drove furiously. And when he was driving along under a big tree, his hair got caught in a limb and left him hanging there. And he hung there many days and many nights, and the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. <laughs> and one night while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair, and he dropped and he fell on the stony ground. And it began to rain, and it rained forty days and forty nights. <laughs> and he hid himself in a cave. And he went and he met a man that said, Come and take supper with me. But he said, I can't come because I've married a wife. And the man went out into the highways and byways and compelled him to come in. And he went on and he came to Jerusalem and saw Queen Jezebel sitting up in a window. And when she saw him, she laughed. And he said, Throw her down. And he said, Throw her down there again. And they threw her down seventy times seven. <laughs> And of the fragments, they picked up 12 baskets full. <laughs> and finally he says, whose wife will she be in the day of judgment? <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> in all seriousness, if I can get back to it, one of the reasons that there is a widespread ignorance of God's people is because we are conditioned to be spoon-fed. We are conditioned to have someone do the research and just tell us what it means so that I don't have to do it and dig it myself. And so instead of letting Bible studies like this whet our appetite, they are the be-all and end-all of what we know. We take out a pen, write a few notes, put it in our Bible, and that's research, that's studying the Word. 
We get conditioned to be spoon-fed instead of letting it whet our appetite. I see a real need for the doctrines of the Bible, the truth of the Bible, God, Jesus, the Trinity, all of that, to be communicated very intelligently but very simply so that people can understand it. People have been taught in high theological talk for such a long time. Man, you can go to some places and they will talk. It sounds like a foreign language. The words that are used, people are nodding their heads because it looks good to do that. But no, no one knows what that guy's talking about. Because you can talk in such high theological sanctuary talk. That just doesn't make any sense. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Not feed my giraffes. The word of God should be down at the level of people where they can grab it. And, and hopefully we'll do that as we go through this mini-series again. Now, we should know something and we should do something. What we should know is doctrine. You say, well, why is doctrine so important? You make this mention about doctrine. Why in the world is doctrine such a big issue? Why is it so important? Listen, God has always been concerned throughout every period of history that His people know the truth, know the Word, know His doctrines. In the Old Testament, when God gave the law, God said, now, I want you guys to remind yourselves wherever you go how important knowledge of this book is. So when you enter your house, you have a portion of the Bible strapped to your doorpost. So when you go home, you look at it and you think, the Word. And I want you to bind it on your right hand and bind it on your forehead. So when you look at each other, you're reminded, the Word is important. I want you to teach it to your children. When a king came on the throne, when he was inaugurated, one of the first things God required a king to do, now get this, would to God that every political leader would do this. The king had to take and write for himself a copy of the first five books of Moses by hand. He couldn't let his secretary type it out on the IBM. He took a scroll and a pen and he wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy by hand, by himself. And he kept it by the throne and he meditated on it day and night. The generals of the army had to meditate on the truth and know the doctrines of the word of the Old Testament. Every seven years, all the people of Israel would get together and they would read in one sitting Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now talk about a Bible study. God held them accountable to know the word. In the New Testament, Jesus rebuked the preachers, the clergy, for not knowing it. Haven't you ever read what the Bible says. Jesus said, you do err because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And I believe they didn't know the power of God because they didn't know the God of the Bible as He revealed Himself. There's an emphasis on doctrine. I have some scriptural verses. I'm not going to read all of them to you. But listen to what Jesus said. Was doctrine important to Jesus? And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his, the Father's, who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, 
Now listen, you want to know God's will? If anyone wants to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Was doctrine important to the early church? Listen to this. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Paul told Timothy, who was a young preacher, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing you will save both yourself and those who hear you. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, that's pretty important. Was doctrine important to Jesus? Yep. To the early church? Yep. To Paul? Yep. To Timothy? Yep. It was important. So why come off and say, doctrine isn't important? Doctrine is a word that simply means what is correct, what is right. It means wholesome truth, good, balanced, solid truth, right teaching. To say doctrine isn't important is to say truth, teaching. What is right biblically really doesn't matter. But it really does matter. Why does it matter? It matters because God does not want his folks to swerve off the path. So he's given them a book. He's given them doctrine. He's given them his word so that they do not get off into this weird thing, into that weird thing, so they can stay on the path and not be like sheep led astray. How many have ever played Monopoly? Let me ask you a question. You know the money that's in Monopoly? Is that real money? Is it? How do you know? How do you know that's not real money? Let me ask you another question. Remember when you were a kid and you go to the store and you get a stack of dollar bills, you like $10,000 for 50 cents? Was that real money? Of course not. How do you know? Because even by that time, you have seen the real thing, what is right, Enough times to know if something is fake. But if you've never seen the real item before or been around it enough, somebody could say, this is real money. And you go, okay, I'll go try to buy a car with it. You'd swerve from it because you haven't been around what is right. Now, it only makes sense that if you know what is right, then if something wrong comes along, you'll be able to spot it. That's why I've had you turn to 1 Timothy 4. Because there is a pretty scary prediction and a fulfillment in our own day and age in 1 Timothy 4. It says, now the Spirit expressly says, this is an implicit, it's, it's explicit, it's very uh, sure, it's very positive. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, which would certainly include our own, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons or doctrines that are taught by demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods, so on and so forth. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits or deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Why? 
Why in the world would someone leave? And by the way, where it says depart, the word means abandon, defect, so to speak. Someone who would know the truth, the faith, what, what it is to be a Christian, to be saved, will depart from the faith, will abandon the faith. Why would anyone, how could anyone, once they know Jesus and, and what it is to, to, the, to have the true teachings of the Lord and the, and the fullness of the Spirit, knowing what is right, knowing what the true faith is, how could anyone leave that? Notice where the source of the teaching is. Deceiving spirits and doctrines that are taught by demons. In other words, teaching will come that sounds so good, sounds so right, but the source is the pit of hell itself. It sounds so humanistic, so fulfilling. It's got to be right. And it will come because people will have itchy ears. They don't want the Bible anymore. Man, we've heard this for so long. Give us something more than just the doctrines of the Bible. We want some, something more to experience. We want something more to be involved in than just the good old Bible. Because of that attitude, because they did not know it was the truth, they will swerve, they will get off the path, and they will defect. And we see it all the time. The big thing these days is the higher self, the inner flame, the Shirley MacLaine seminars that are being taught everywhere. Oh, that's not, people embracing that like crazy because you don't have to go outside of yourself and depend on deity or on a detached being. You depend on number one, you depend on yourself and it's all inside of you. People are turning toward transcendental meditation, Eastern mysticism, all sorts of stuff. People who preach from the pulpits, like from this pulpit to congregations like you, are people who do not teach the word anymore. In fact, liberal seminaries are teaching their ministers how to astral project, how to read auras, tell fortunes. Ouija boards are used by youth groups now on overnight picnics. Call out the gospel? I consider that a fulfillment of this particular chapter and verse. Now, we've covered the fact that doctrine is important. Okay, now what? Three things. You need to, first of all, if you believe that and you see that this is important, you have to view the Bible correctly. You have to have a right belief about it, a right attitude in your heart about it, and a right action toward it. All three of them together. There are some fundamental truths, folks, real basic stuff, that if you do not have firmly planted in your heart, you will be unstable as water. You have no purpose, you'll have no direction, you'll have nothing to rest on. Some fundamental facts, some fundamental truths, that if you're not devoted to those truths, believing those truths, the Bible isn't going to help you very much. And you're not going to have something to rest on when the going really gets tough. Now, I'm not really concerned what translation you have. I'm not going to give a Bible study and say, Now, the King James is the only one. That's the Bible. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. There are some that I don't like. There are some that I like. If you've got the New International, if you've got the New, New, uh, New American Standard, New King James, Old King James, the Raw Reese Study Bible in broken English, doesn't matter. 
First of all, the Bible is inspired, which means God breathed upon it. Now, I don't want to get real. I don't want to talk in theologianese. I don't like it. Let me tell you about inspiration and what it means, okay? First of all, let me tell you what it is not. Inspiration is not dictation, okay? God did not talk and people took notes or had a tape recorder, took shorthand. It was not dictation. Nor was inspiration simply a high level of human achievement. You see, a lot of people will use this phrase, Oh, what an inspiring play. What an inspiring message. The Bible is not inspired like an inspired song or an inspiring book. It is uniquely the Word of God, the very Word of God, through human instruments. Even theologians, some of them look at inspiration, and the Bible is no more inspired than a Shakespeare play or an encyclopedia. Oh, that's an inspiring article. The Bible is an inspiring book, like literature is inspired. I know a lot of preachers that are inspired by drinking too much coffee. The inspiration of the Bible is it's uniquely the Word of God, where God takes human beings, average human beings, selected by God in different times of history, and He conveyed, He expressed Himself through the minds and the words of these people, so that the words that they wrote down were the very words God wanted to use, God wanted to say. It was not too difficult for God, being all-powerful, to use a simple human instrument and get across to the world what He wanted to do. It's inspired as God breathed. Second of all, the Bible is your authority because it is inerrant. It is without error. You know, I found three basic types of people. When it comes to the Bible, there's three groups of people. There's one group who says, the Bible is another book. The Bible is just a piece of literature. It's filled with myths, weird visions, a bunch of genealogies. It has no real value except to put deaths and births, marriages in, uses a doorstop. The second group says, yes, I guess the Bible is pretty important, although I don't read it all that much because it's kind of tough for me to understand. And I know it's probably important. They quote it at church. The preacher waves it in the air. It must be important. But I don't give myself that much to it because, you know, it's all Greek to me. It's tough to understand. Then there's a third group. The third group believes it is the Word of God, inspired, without error. They can rest on it. They rely on it. They search it. They meditate on it. They memorize it. They give themselves to the principles that they want to answer in life. The Bible has the final answer. There's a real peace and security to face any kind of a problem. I have found that most church people fall into the category between two and three somewhere. Some, it's important, but eh. And to others, it's very important. And most people fall into those categories that uh, really come to church. Now, I've watched all three groups. I've observed people in life and in death. People who don't believe the Bible is important, I've watched their lifestyle. I've watched the lifestyle of people who think, yeah, it's probably important, but I don't do much with it. And I've watched the lifestyle 
of people who really believe in it and really give themselves to it. And by the way, I've buried all three types of people. I've watched them face life and I've watched them face death. And you know what? There's such a big difference in the way all three groups face death, face catastrophe. I've watched people who believe in God and trust the word happily go into eternity, even in the midst of suffering. It's not scary. It's not an enigma. They face death and they think, hey, I'm going home, man. I'm going to be with the Lord. This is going to be awesome. In a few days, a few months, I'm going to be in heaven. What a difference in perspective of life and perspective of death. Because you see, the way you view and what you believe about the Bible will determine the quality of life that you live. Whether you have answers in times of problems or whether you don't. In life or in death. You know why this is so important? You know why I'm doing a whole thing on this this morning? It's because you are challenged. You are challenged at work, at school, on TV, in songs. You're challenged. The Bible authority is challenged. When you go to the University of New Mexico, do you think they teach you the authority and the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible? When you turn on Johnny Carson... Do you think he tells you about the inerrancy of the Bible? When you turn on Ma- Ma- Max Hedrum, do you think he talks about the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Scripture? No, the songs, the media, the personalities of the world are challenging that. And you know what happens to lots of believers? You may never verbalize it, but you know what goes through their minds? They start thinking, you know, I wonder. I really wonder if what I'm doing is even bright. If to believe this ancient book is even smart. I mean, all the scientists, all the brains, all the professors, all the heroes on television, they don't do it. Is this really smart? And they start wavering because the philosophies of this world, very relative. Richard Insenius, one of our staff members, is getting his master's degree in counseling. The university, his professors constantly stand up. In fact, the beginning of the class, they stood up. And they said, now we want to tell you something about counseling. When you counsel people, we are not dealing with the truth. Because what is true for this person may not be true for that person. So forget about what is true and what is not true when you counsel people. Whatever works is all you have to be concerned about. Just whatever gets them by. This is a master's level counseling class. The truth is not important because they know no truth. Now, in the midst of that kind of thinking, folks, there's the Bible. And there's this fanatical group, group three, who says, I've got peace, I've got rest, the final answer is the Bible, I've got a resting place in life, I don't have to worry or wonder about things, I'm secure, I'm satisfied. (laughs) It's a place I want to be. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a lengthy psalm, 176 verses. We're going to read all of them. No, we're not. I want you to look over at verse 92. 
David, who wrote this, certainly loved the Word of God, the Bible. Because of all, of the 176 verses, 170 of them, he just leaves out six, 170 of them deal with the Bible. Look at verse 92. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Did you get that? Unless I really believed, see he was in group three, unless I really believed in your Bible, in your word, in your law, when the going got real tough in my affliction, I'd have been wiped out. I'd have been wasted. What do you turn to when the uh, bottom falls out of your life? When the roof caves in, the top story goes to the bottom story, and you feel like you're in the pits. What do you turn to? What works for you? What gets you through? What do you have as your final resting place, the bottom line that gets you through? Is it a self-help philosophy of the higher inner being? Is it a chemical dependence? Is it alcohol? Is it sex? What is it? What gets you through? Everybody wants something. Everybody wants answers. There was a Gallup poll last few years. They surveyed people all across the United States. It was an interesting uh, poll. They said, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask Him? If you could talk to God about something and you wanted an answer, what question? And they made this survey. They put the top ten questions that people in America want answers for. Let me read them to you. I think you're going to find them uh, pretty revealing as to where people are coming from. Number one. Why is there suffering in the world? Number two, will there ever be a cure for all diseases? See, the questions are born out of the times of sorrow and distress. Who do you turn to? Number three, why is there evil in this world? Number four, will there ever be lasting world peace? Number five, will man ever love his fellow man? Six, when will the world end? Seven, what does the future hold for me and my family? Eight, is there life after death, God? Nine, what is heaven like? Ten, how can I be a better person? The kind of questions that people are asking God are questions when everything else fails, they want some answer, they want something to lean on. Have you ever been accused of Jesus, of you following Christianity and it's a crutch? Man, this is just a cop-out for you, man. What a crutch. you got to lean on Jesus. It got so tough, you got religious and it's a crutch. You know what? I never argue with that fact. So you're right. So let me go one step further. It's not a crutch. He's a stretcher. I'm just not leaning on him with one leg out. i got to lay down on him. Not a, I mean, he's a whole hospital, if you want to get real technical. Lean on him. What do you lean on if you don't lean on him? What philosophy, what system, what gets you through in your affliction? David had it. It was the Word of God. Now, when we say inerrant, let me tell you what it means. It simply means it has no errors in it. That the original autographs, the original copies, when God inspired man and God revealed His Word, are without error. I'm not talking about little copyist errors and little paragraph things that have 
transpired because of copying through the centuries. The original manuscripts and autographs, as they're called, are inerrant, authoritative. They have no error. Not just for faith and, and practice, but historically and scientifically, and many of those areas are proven. We could do it weeks on the proof of the Bible. I'll just whet your appetite and have you do that on your own. But beware, because Bible teachers, pastors, are teaching that there are errors in this book. Well, it's partly God's Word. It's partly man's Word. I mean, there's some things you can believe. I mean, the words in red, those are, those are okay. Those are truth. Jesus said those. But some of the apostles' commentaries and some of the Old Testament stories, they're not literal. They say, look, what Jesus said was right, but Jonah in a whale three days and three nights, you can't swallow that. That's not the truth. Certainly not historical. Well, then they have a bigger problem because that means that Jesus just didn't know his Bible and he was really mistaken because Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth before I rise again. He didn't say, as Jonah was figuratively in the belly of the figurative whale, figuratively three days and nights, I'm going to figuratively die and rise again. He believed it literally. He said it literally. So either he was mistaken or they're mistaken. I, I would rather believe that they're mistaken. I don't think God has been wrong for all these centuries until these liberal theologians came along to enlighten us in our age about what God said and what he didn't say. Or they say, well, the book of Daniel, he didn't really write it. I mean, it's so accurate in its prophecy. No one could have written those things before the events took place and be that accurate. And Jesus blew it again. He says, as it was spoken by Daniel the prophet, when he talked about the abomination of desolation. So either they're all right and the Bible's wrong and Jesus is wrong. If that's the case, why read it? You see, if part of this is God's word and part of this is man's word, you eventually, your life is a big zero. Because who's to decide which is which? One person's going to say, this is inspired, but that is not. And another person will say, well, I disagree with that. I think that's inspired, but so... What are you going to believe? And how, let's take it a step further. How, maybe it's possible that the facts concerning Jesus and the resurrection and the crucifixion, maybe there's an error there somewhere. And we're all mistaken. What are we doing with this book then? I think it's all or nothing. Look at it this way. Is it really tough for a God who can create the heavens and the earth to write a book? Can't God write a book? People do it all the time. And they use other human instruments. They use other researchers. Couldn't God use human beings and keep them from blowing it and get his word across to the world using people? If he can create the world, speak it into existence? Is it too tough for him to write a book? I don't think so. It all depends on how big your God is. If your God is a midget in your eyes, then you've got a problem. But if your God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, no problem for this to be the authoritative, inerrant word of God. And I believe it is. If you don't believe it is, it's to your own detriment. Now, believing the right things about the Bible is one thing. The attitude toward the Scriptures is another thing. And that's why I've had you turn to the psalm. Because David hungers for the Scripture. As I read Psalm 119, I see a man who is in love with God. 
and who loved the word of God because it brought him into the very presence of God. And he was able to know his father through the Bible. The reason being is because although David was a mighty king, he saw that he was in desperate need of God. And because he saw his need, it caused him to hunger. And if we could go through Psalm 119, I'm not going to go through every verse, but there's several verses that speak of the benefits of a hunger for the word. Over in verse 11, it says that it protects us from sin. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. In verse 45, it provides freedom and liberty. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. In verse 50, there's comfort in suffering. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. Over again in verse 89, there's wisdom, insight, maturity. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers. College students, if you're, if you're Christians, you can claim that promise. Because the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients. Verse 105, direction. Let's camp on this verse for just a moment. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. David pictures life as a path that one is unable to see. It's dark. Uh, he can't find direction, which shows that a human being cannot know God's will outside of God's word. But God gives him his word, which is like a flashlight, and he can see the path, although darkness is all around him. He knows which way to go. Look back at verse 81. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from seeking your word. Look over at verse 130. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. What does Psalm 42 teach us? It's a song that we sing. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Is that the heart of someone who didn't care about the Bible, didn't care about God? Someone who's thirsting and starving? Speaking about a real search for it, not a casual snack. I'm panting for God. Now here's a key. It's a real key to your life. To the degree that you see your need for this book is the same degree that it will make an impact on you. See, if you really don't think you need it or it's that important, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. Why is it that one person can have contact with the Bible and walk away so enriched, so refreshed, so fulfilled, so much at peace, it speaks to him. And another person can read the same thing and it's cold and lifeless and dead. Primarily because there's a difference in approach. One is hungry. One is expecting. The other isn't. You have not because you ask not. It's a basic scriptural principle. If you sit at a dinner table and you're not hungry for the food, are you going to eat? Probably not. If you come anticipating a great meal and you're hungry, chow down. To the degree of need is the same degree that the Bible will make an impact on your life. Now, finally, believing something about the Bible is important. Having the right attitude is important. But that's still not enough. 
You can know the doctrine's important. You can believe that the Bible's inspired, authoritative, without error. You can believe that you need a hunger for it and that it's important and you have a thirst, but that's still not enough. You have to do it once you find out what it says. And I want to end with 2 Peter chapter 1. And that's where we close today. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3 and 4. His divine power. It's a key word. Power. His divine power has given to us all things or all the resources that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Another key word promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust now that's God's part God has laid at your disposal two things his power and his promises his word and his ability he gave you all in the Bible all in his promises that you need and he'll give you the power to do all that you need to do you know what that means that means that you and I can grow as much as we want to grow. We can be as spiritually mature as we want to be. The only thing that hinders our maturity is what? Us. We're the only ones. We can't say, well, I just can't grow because there's this thing over here, or there's this person, or there's this church. You can grow as much as you allow yourself to grow because He's given you all of the promises, all of the power. Now that's God's part. Promises, verse 4, power, verse 3. Then there's our part. By the way, God's promises are not ornaments. That's why they're called precious promises. They're not meant to just stick on a poster with a cat on it to hang in the bedroom. It's not just meant to stick up on the refrigerator or wear a pin with a, or a greeting card with a scripture on it. It's not meant just to underline. It's meant to work and to apply that's why I bring you to the next verse. But also for this very reason, verse 5. What reason? The reason of spiritual growth. Giving all diligence add to your faith. Virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, and on and on. Giving all diligence is literally apply yourself. Exert yourself. Use elbow grease. Get down and do something. Skip, are you saying I have to do something? You betcha. It's exactly what I'm saying. Make no mistake about it. You do need to do something. To be saved? No. You're saved by grace, through faith. Not of yourselves, not by works. But if you want to grow in the Lord, you bet your life you do. Giving all diligence. Exert yourself. Apply yourself. The next word, add. Add to your faith. Don't just be content. I got saved. Went to an altar call. Bought a Bible. Good. Add to your faith. Which is a word that means lavishly supply. 
Let me give you an illustration. Somebody goes over to your house. Now, I don't know what your house looks like. But let's say someone goes over to your house and you live in a meager little house. You have a cardboard box for a television stand. In fact, you don't even have a television. You have a picture of a television on your box. (laughs) Somebody goes over to your house. You invite them over. They look around and they say, nice place, but it could be better. Tell you what I'll do. He pulls out a wad of bucks. $20 bills, $50 bills, $100 bills, just tons of it. He goes, look. I want you to lavishly supply your house with furniture. Spare no expense. Trick this puppy out. Make it beautiful. Get the nice couch, the 20-foot speakers, the waterbed, whatever you want. I just want to make sure that you have the finest. You'd say, great. Be pretty exciting. Spare no expense. Make it the finest. Lavishly supplied by someone who has the resources. That's the point of this passage. God has given you all that you need to be spiritual, to grow in Him. He's given you power. He's given you promises so that you can have a strong Christian life, a tight walk with God. You can be growing because He's given you the Word and the power to apply the Word. But you, exert yourself. Don't be content with where you're at. Grow. Continue to lavishly add to what you know and to what you're doing now as a Christian. Grow in the Lord. Apply the Word of God so that it doesn't sit dormant. Because if we stop with just knowing it, we turn into fat, sassy Bible nerds. Stuffed full of knowledge. Knowing how to exegete and have apologetics and argue with the cults and stand here. But doing it, making it... And that's important. Making it more into our hearts where it works. What's the benefit of it? Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent, there's the word again, to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. What if I don't do that? Verse 9. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. God is saying, make your Christian life the finest. Don't just get by or you're in category number two. Be in category number three. You rest on it, you rely on the Word of God, and you do it. There was a vacuum cleaner salesman. I know we have a couple here, and I I don't want to degrade the profession. There was a vacuum cleaner salesman who was selling his vacuum cleaners, and he decided to go way out in the country, out to Edgewood, Moriarty. No offense if you're from there. He went to this house, knocked on the door, a little old lady answered, and this guy, you know, turned on the salesman. Well, good morning. I have got a product that is guaranteed to work for you. In fact, this vacuum is so powerful, it would suck the carpet up if I didn't watch it. So he edged his way in, and he went to her fireplace, took some ashes, dumped them all over her new rug. Handful of dirt that was in his pocket from outside, dumped it on the rug. And she was looking at him like, oh my goodness. Looked stunned. He saw the look on her face and said, Ma'am, don't worry, this is guaranteed. In fact, if this vacuum cleaner doesn't take up, suck up every bit of dirt, I'll eat it with a spoon. She looked at him in the eye and said, Start eating, because we ain't got no electricity. (laughs) He had the goods, but he didn't have the power. Nothing to plug in. Didn't work. That's not Christianity. 
There are a lot of Christians who live like that. They've got the book. They've got the goods. They know the truth in their brains, but it's not worked out in their lives. No power. Plug in. He's given you ability and power to make it work and to grow. Let's pray. Now, our Heavenly Father, I pray that this would whet our appetites for more of you, to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. Lord, deliver us from the first two groups and make us people who rely, who believe it, who admit their need for it, hunger for it, and develop right actions with it to make it effective in our lives. As your prophet said, your word is like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. Lord, break stony hearts if that's what is here. Make us fresh and revitalize. Even like baby Christians again, wanting the pure, sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby.